You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Like instant slices of mesa. My abuela 
was caught in one on her way to work. That's how we knew they rose so quickly, because they caught her in mid-stride. On Sundays, we went to visit her. My father rubbed baby oil into the heel of her left foot, raised slightly out of the back of her work pumps. Kailasima, they were caught in those uncomfortable shoes. He talked to her all the time, although since we couldn't see her ears, I was pretty certain she couldn't hear him. He rubbed Nydia into the creases of her right elbow, pushed back with the weight of the black leather purse we knew was tucked under her arm, only a corner of it visible. Sometimes, my mother would come with a bucket of water and shampoo and undo the last twist of bone that protruded from the wall. She would wash the three inches of gray hair, the very ends of my abuela's long hair that normally would sway at her waist and now only fluttered from the wall like a sad flag. Then she would have them dry with a marable yellow towel and wrap the bonnet up again. So unfortunate that she was caught facing that way, my father would sigh, because my abuela barely spoke English and we imagined that they didn't allow Spanish over there anymore. We imagined because we didn't know. No stories came out. We didn't know if my abuela was worse off, or my Grimaldi, who was trapped somewhere on the inside. She wasn't in the wall. My Tisessa went all the way around it looking for her, meter by meter. He thought he would be able to sneak in somewhere, but the walls went all the way around. The river was all fucked up, he told us when he came back and the ocean crashed against walls now. No more beaches, no more cliffs. He held up some hope that he would be able to cross in from Canada, but the walls had risen there too, trapping people and cars, even a few border agents. He didn't find Leslie in the walls, so she had to be on the inside. We waited. Surely they would deport people, but no one appeared. Maybe they couldn't figure out how to get them to no stories came out, and yet we had stories. Some people said they had done it on purpose, found some new chemical industrial witchcraft. Others said it was a judgment on them, even when it felt more like a judgment on us. Analysts predicted war and anarchy, said that inside, the crops would be failing and people would be starving and squabbling. That was hard to grasp, though. All that money and power rotting away so quickly. It was easier to imagine that inside they were engineering monsters or killer robots, triaging their victims expertly by melanin content or neuro linguistic pathways. We imagined them coming for us, clawing their way through a wall or marching along a path that opened for them the touch of a button. We imagined them coming for us in tanks and F-16s, followed by our lost relatives and friends transformed into a zombie army. We imagined this happening, and then we made movies about it. Blob monsters fermented from a stew of nitrates and untreated sewage, super soldiers without hearts or cavities, all steely eyes and square jaws. Instead, what came was what they called light. People started moving away, not because of fear, but because there were a few jobs and no buyers from the north and nothing coming out from the north to buy. And then once people started moving, there were fewer jobs. My father had to close his barber shop. 
but he was hired at the hotel where my mother worked because the one industry that remained was tourism. I sold flowers at a little stand near the wall for people to leave by the edges of their loved ones or in memory of those who were unusual. The first time someone asked me about the best flowers of the wall itself, I didn't understand the question. I shook my head and wrote that senora off as one more person attached from reality, but people kept asking. I went to look and found shrines that were not dedicated to the lost, but to the walls themselves. People were praying that the walls would keep us safe from chemical stained water and fracking earthquakes and particle-ridden air. I decided the flower for this was a cactus, and over the next years, we sold so many, I had to start a cactus garden. But when people told me they wanted to pray the walls would keep us safe from other contaminants, from xenophobia and hate and fear, then I told them the appropriate flower was roses. Anyone foolish enough to believe walls can keep you safe from those things deserved to pay for our most expensive bloom. We stayed for six years, until my mother died. I knew as soon as I saw her that Sunday, it was an instant depression like a flashbulb. But I didn't want to look at my father to see if I was right. When we got closer, we could see those knobs of skin. My father used to care for so funny he was on had changed color, gone pale and purpley. And when we touched her, my father clinging to her fragments of heel with two fingers and a thumb. While I pressed one finger to her elbow, she was cold. My father curled down and put his head on the ground and cried. Cried for so long that I started to feel sick, as if the world were spinning too fast, and I didn't know what to do. There are worse stories than ours, but I don't want to tell them. Newlyweds and newborns and dying relatives all varieties. People who did everything they could and some things that nobody could do, and none of it helped. There are many more stories, but I don't want to tell them. I wish I had never heard them, that they had never happened. <coughs> we buried my widow in the way that had become custom, patting soil over her sad, hard heel and her elbow, patting it into a mound that sloped down from the wall that covered a more or less human shape, and leaving a little more of a stone for her to plow. For a while, my father still went every Sunday to leave flowers and to cry. Then we moved south. <coughs> Tio Cesar and Tia Lula stayed in case anyone ever came through, anyone they could ask about what happened on the other side. They were hoping to have a guess about the rest of their daughter's life, even if she never got out herself. Mainly, they were hoping to be reassured that it wasn't as anguished as they imagined. But we moved south. I didn't think it would ever happen because my father was so sad. The only reason he managed it finally was for me. You should forget, he whispered to me, the night after we crossed the desert and reached the first city that looked like a real city. We were staying in a tiny hotel. We could hear snores from the rooms next to us, the rushing of water when someone flushed the toilet on the floor above, and from the bar down the street, Cumbia, and sometimes Machanda. You should forget and live your life. I nodded when he said that, because even though they always taught us to study history and remember injustice and never forget, I couldn't find any lesson here that would help me be anything but sad. Some people, 
are afraid now, with all that's going on, that the walls will grow again to the south of us this time. There are those who are in favor, saying it is such a tiny border we need to close, a totally different situation, but others say that if they rise, they won't just keep out the Guatemalanecos and Cathachos, but will continue all along the coasts until they meet the impenetrable walls in the north. Then we'll be the ones to shut in and quarantine from the world. Others scoff and say we're still a long way from that happening. It's only talk, and not nearly as bad as it was back there, back then. Some still pray to the walls in the north, rogando that algún día they will fall away, and we will find a healed land within. Maybe a healed people, too, although as time passes, that idea is fading. Me? I keep my eyes on the colors in front of me. Mangos and tejidos and pink pickled onions, limones and azulejos and the hobbles in the road. I listen for music, any kind of twang or resonance, any beat, and especially the voices that climb in soggy crescendos. I trail my fingertips along the stone and concrete buildings, knowing I could be caught at any breath trapped for the rest of my life between one imagined country and another. Which is something that resonates to me as the daughter of 
immigrants on both sides of my family, trying to go to places that I've always heard about and always gotten snatches of through my upbringing, but they still don't feel quite like home. Uh, sometimes it's the other of an explorer who's going into a completely different land full of aliens, trying to figure out what's going on there and realizing that it gives a different perspective on their own culture and their own homeland, uh, which is something that has happened to me innumerable times as I lived in other countries. <clears throat> and thinking that I was learning so much about that place, realized eventually that I was learning quite a bit about my own place as well. Um, there's one story about another, which is uh, an AI, although in this case it's an artificial intelligence that was designed not so much for calculation as for empathy, designed as a kind of uh, humane AI, an AI that's based on emotions and finds itself nonetheless completely other in a human world that doesn't value emotions. <coughs> so, uh, that's um, a little bit of, of, about this book and about the thematic that runs through it completely unintentionally. Uh, there's also quite a bit of politics in the book, as yet, you could probably tell from the story I read. Um, <laughs> some of them are a bit more explicit than others. Um, also, if you've read any of my other work, you're aware of it. It's all about politics. Um, so, there's quite a bit of that, and there are people who are fans of infomocracy and the Sentinel Cycle. Uh, and I'm going to take a break from it and open it to questions to see kind of which way you guys would like me to go because I'm happy to talk more about the writing process or the craft, or I'm happy to talk more about the specifics of some of the work. If there are any questions, if not, I can go on. Oh, I have five or six or seven, but the first one would be uh, I'm interested in how you organize. We've give, you know, given this wealth of material, mm -hmm. different, you know, did, did it seem natural to how you would organize them? Because there were no hard and fast rules. I, I asked this of poets, too, when they mm -hmm. put a collection together. How did, how did you go by that? By just ear or feel? Well, I will say it was a very much a collaborative process between me and the editors. Who are here so they can actually answer you as well? <coughs> if you guys have any thoughts about that. Um, because they, you know, they kind of suggested a general ordering, um, but we did have some back and forth, and there were actually some things that that I that I changed. Um, so, for example, we had we had a question about whether all the poems would be together in the center of the book or whether they would be spread out throughout the book. Um, and I won, but that's <laughs> because they're they're nice publishers, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, I, I kind of felt like the, the specific poems resonated with certain stories, and I wanted to have them right there to make sure that that resonance got caught. Uh, so that, that was kind of one thing that I really stood out, I think. Um, but they came up with a great idea of splitting up one of the stories and spreading that throughout as well, which a lot of people have really, really appreciated, which was not at all my idea, but I was very happy with the way it turned out. Yeah, and a little bit to that is we 
read them as individual pieces and tried out a lot of different orders to see what worked and put our favorites in different places where we thought they would most resonate with the reader. Uh, tried to open it with a bang and close it uh, with a bigger bang also. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, everything in there is, is fantastic, but tried to kind of make it almost a Parabola, the right word that I'm looking for? Like a sign. Yeah, 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 exactly. A little bit up and <laughs> down to try to create a sort of effect. And I think also it's, it's really helpful having them look at it and do that because for me, you know, these are stories that had been written and come out at, at different times from 2014, is probably when I wrote them, up to the very recent. And particularly the ones that have been out for a longer period of time, to me they feel less fresh because you know I've been aware of them, I've had other editors look at them, I've read them sometimes out loud at readings, um, I've you know recommended them to people, and then the, the new ones always feel a little bit more exciting, just because you haven't read it so many times. Um, so to have people come to them fresh, I think was really helpful in terms of, of that sort of determination. Was the decision just to um, divide the one story into and put it throughout the book because of length or because thematics or um, so? How'd you guys come upon that idea? <laughs> A little bit thematics, also the format of the, the that piece mm -hmm. read at least uh, in part almost like a prose poem mm -hmm. that would have an effect spread out that would sort of seep into the reader in different places. And then hopefully, and I believe some did, they would go back and read them all in order to see how it all has, has a through thread. That was, that was a fun, a, a fun one. A stroke of genius. Don't be curious. Any other questions from anyone else? Yes? Um, this is more of like a personal or maybe like career question, but so you have, do you still have a job that isn't writing full time or? Not exactly. Okay. Um, not exactly not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I recently, I, so I did a lot of my kind of big writing while I was a PhD student, which a lot of people think that's like amazing. It was really procrastination from my dissertation. And it was really very convenient because like when I um, sent an editor a part of my novel and he said, I love it even more, I said, sure. And then I wrote my dissertation for two months. And which <laughs> is not something you can do the whole time job. It only works because I was away from my university at that point and could kind of fudge with my advisor. Um, and then it worked. But uh, you know, it was a very flexible sort of full-time job to be a PhD student. And I recently finished. So I'm a sort of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of a full-time writer now, but um, I end up doing uh, some novel writing, I'm doing a lot of short stories that are commissioned, I do some essays or opinion pieces. Uh, and I do a little bit of consulting of other kinds as well. So there's there's a little bit of non-writing stuff that goes in there. But for the most part, that's what I'm doing now. I don't actually know how long I'll be able to finish to do that. 
do that, but yeah, it's, it's good to have a, a flexible situation. Um, I always wrote when I was in full-time jobs, but it was definitely a haphazard So I, I hear you uh, saying that when the reader is the other person in your stories that are of other worlds, um, that some, did you say that somehow helped you process some of your experiences with displaced people where you worked around the world? Um, I would say more that it's, it, that experience inspired the stories and inspired the writing that I did, um, and then it was a way of processing it so much. Um, when I when I think about sort of what to write about, you know, a lot of people say write what you know, and I tend to think more write what you miss. So something that you know well but it's not I can't because I find that those writing those kinds of memories, the memories of the places that I love and I'm very far away from are are vivid and are imbued with a kind of emotion that you don't necessarily get from the stuff that you see in front of your face. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, um, for a lot of these stories, you know, one of the things that I missed because I was a little bit more um, sedentary while I was writing them than I had in the past was that experience of going to a totally new place that I didn't know that much about and just being, uh, having to be immersed in all these new sensations, different language, different ideas, uh, different way people dress, everything. Uh, and I really love that. And I, I kind of miss it when I'm not doing it. Um, obviously, you can't do it constantly. So it, it, it was an inspiration to explore and be free with your thoughts, whatever paths you took. Well, I would say it's more um, the experience of being in a place where I didn't understand everything that was around me, um, being in a place where I was definitely noticeably always foreign, always the other, um, that was inspiration for some of the, some of the kinds of stories that I wrote. Um, you know, one thing that happens when you're in a place where people have very different approaches to things is that your values suddenly get switched around or look very different than they did before you got there. And quite a few of the stories, I think, have that element in them of thinking of reading a situation one way and finding out that other people are reading it in a completely different way. Uh, so that's something that, that I wrote a lot about. So how do you think some of the places you've been to, if some of the people you met there read the books you just described, well, how do you think so they hard. would feel about it or think? We're international, right? Yeah. What's yeah, that? Yeah. Australia, <laughs> Sweden. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I, I certainly had some of my friends from other countries no, I, I mean like the people in Darfur or those places, the displaced yes. people. That's, that's what, what do you think? Okay. 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 Other places I've worked. It takes a long time to get there. <laughs> I'm not actually sure that one made it through the government, but um, but yeah, I mean I think that there's a lot to relate to in in that idea of you know as much as I was someone who was foreign to them. They were seeing me as someone who came in with different ideas and different thoughts and, and was bringing things. So I, I think that it's a relationship that works both ways. It's obviously quite different when you're the one person in a, in a context, but but that is a you know that is a situation that goes both ways. For people who are living there also to see that one more person come in, or five or six 
and have those communities, it, it does, uh, it is a two-way exchange. And so, you know, I like to think that they find the books interesting as well. Yes. Um, is there a piece, I'm, I'm wondering this as a reader and as a publisher, is there a piece in there that you have a particular affinity to? Um, I don't know, like I said before, you know, they come from different times in my life, and so they, they attach to different things for me. Um, they're, you know, right, there's a story in this book about space marine midwives, right now, that feels very relevant to me. So that's one that I'm kind of thinking about a lot at the moment. Um, I, the one that I read, I still feel like is uh, something that is also very relevant at the moment and, and that I just want to be spreading to people as much as I can. Um, but, you know, I can also think about, like, you know, the first story that I published was, is in here and that obviously has a lot of feels. Yeah, any other questions? Which one was that? The first story I published? Uh, it's called Street Tracks. Yeah. Um, as a novelist and someone writes, audio. Mm -hmm. How would you how do you feel about people who read short story collections uh, dip into it, read piece by piece, versus would you rather them read from start to finish? I think people should read it any way they want. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean I would like them not to misquote me or anything, but in terms of the reading, I think people should read however they want to read books. So I'm quite happy with people who dip in and read it out of order. The publishers may feel different since they were the ones who came up with the order and maybe more attached to it. I don't know, but for me, if people are reading, you know, even if people read one story from this, I mean, ideally, they like it and then they read more, but I'm quite happy that people get one story that they care about. Um, and yeah, I don't care as long as they're reading. Yeah. Um, so you've obviously made a book of poetry and prose. Um, and you mentioned earlier in putting it together in order that some of the poems were more or less connected to others. Um, can you talk more about that and like the process of crafting something that has both of those forms? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was largely coincidental because the poems also came from, from very different times in my life. So uh, there's a poem that comes after that story I just read, um, which is a poem about, it's called Expatriate. But it's a poem that I wrote uh, after 9-11. I was living, I moved to China like two days before 9-11. And so, you know, it's the sort of thing where I went to send a letter home and they were like, there's no airplanes to take this. Do you still want to send it on a boat? And I said, no, I'll wait. I think they're gonna start up the airplanes before the boat gets there. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a poem that's very much, for me, of that time. You can't really tell from, from the poem itself necessarily, but, you know, to, to me, what I was thinking about where that would go, that time and this time uh, have certain resonances, and specifically the things that I was trying to bring out in that poem and in the story that I read have certain resonances that I thought would, would work well together, and to have that sort of um, interaction would be good, especially because I think divided, you know, the story I read just now, it's a story that comes from the other perspective, right? It's a story that comes from south of the border, from someone who's outside 
whatever's happening inside those walls and whatever happened to bring up those walls. They're not completely uh, separate from it or immune to it as we see at the end of the story when there's a threat of the walls coming up there as well. Uh, but it's, you know, it is that different perspective as opposed to the poem, which is very much about uh, trying to figure out the feelings on the inside when these things happen. Um, so it was really kind of just uh, picking the sorts of the, the themes um, from the, these poems that I mostly read even longer ago than the stories, and just trying to find places where they would add something to the reading the way I was going. Um, but all that said, again, if you want to just go through and read the poems, I <laughs> enjoy it. What are you working on now? What's next? Oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> so I, as, as someone mentioned, I do write for serial, uh, I write serial fiction. Um, so I write for serial blogs. I have a serial that I created called My Step Station, um, which had one season already, and I'm eight, actually, quite a few days. I'm writing an episode of the second season, which we're almost finished with, and which will come out sometime in spring. Um, I also write for a serial that is a licensed sequel to Orphan Black, which is actually the season finale comes out tomorrow, so you should catch up with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I, I do some, some work on that. Also, I also just finished up a short story for Future Tense and Slate, which will come out, I think, this month, maybe next month, soon, very soon. Um, and I'm working on novels. I'm always working on novels because, as I said, I'm more of a novel person. It does take a really long time, especially when they're not under contract yet. But uh, I'm working on, last I checked, a fantasy, a romance, and a young adult fantasy. Would you do anything so retrograde as attempt to turn your dissertation into a book? Uh, I probably would. In fact, I'd quite like to. There's, What's the topic? Um, my dissertation yeah. is so it's sociology, as you mentioned, and it's about how local and municipal governments, after catastrophic failures in their organization due to naturally caused disasters, improvise and rebuild organizations. And I look at Hurricane Katrina and also the Japan tsunami. Um, so it was, it was really uh, a very interesting experience writing. Uh, and especially researching it. I think I would like to write something that's a bit more about the experience of researching something like this, as opposed to just solely the adaptation of the dissertation, because it was quite emotional to talk to people who've been through this, even when I was trying very hard to keep it to a kind of technical area. Um, and so that, that was a really interesting experience for me. Um, so potentially, there's an issue with academic writing that it does not pay. Uh, and so as long as I have other writing that does pay, it's hard to put it on the front burner. Um, so I am supposed to be adapting articles from it, and like I have to, I have to like, send them to conferences as abstracts, because unless I have a deadline, it's very hard to make myself write it for free. Um, write something that requires footnotes for free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I, I really uh, value the, the work I did, so I would like to uh, do something with it at some Any other 
Do you have any thoughts on what happened in Puerto Rico in the response? So many thoughts. <laughs> so, so many thoughts. Um, I think I'm going to refer that again to Twitter. Because <laughs> a lot of them are out there, you can just search. Uh, and also, yeah, I love thoughts. Uh, I mean, I, I study disasters, I've worked in disasters in the past. I have a lot of thoughts about generally um, things that we should do in this country as well as in other countries to make disaster response better. Um, but it's, it's a long topic. It's quite a long marriage. Um, do you have sympathy with, I forget the chef's name, that... Jose Andres? He fed the country, or, you know, the World Kitchen. You um, know. I mean, I enjoy going to restaurants. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you have sympathies with what he has written? Uh, you have to be more specific about what he's written. I think they've done a lot of good work. Um, I know he's done some, he's made some criticisms, but to, to specifically say exactly, I would have to know exactly what you're talking about because he's said a lot of different things. And frankly, I agree, there's, he said some things I agree with and some things I disagree with. Um, but again, that's kind of a digression for tonight. We could do another event entirely about disaster response. I'd be very happy to come and talk about that for a solid hour, uh, but I won't do it right now. And I want to thank you all so much for coming tonight. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.